morning marks the start of our new series entitled Soul Watchers. Uh, we're going to be spending the next several weeks talking about church leadership um, and just leadership within the church. Uh, we have actually taken the name Soul Watchers, we've derived that from Hebrews 13, verse 17, where it states, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. So it's our hope um, as pastors and as leaders to examine God's word and expose the truth to what Scripture says, what God himself says about leadership within the church and what uh, leadership within the body of Christ should look like. And so this morning, I want to ask the big question, where does leadership start? Where does leadership start? If you're familiar with this, the sports world, you're always looking for the leader of the team. Who's going to step up? Who's going to be the leader of the team? What is leadership made of? What is it made of? If you do a quick Google search, um, the top results that you'll come across will say something like, leadership starts with you. Leadership begins with you. I want to take a look at a man today that... Uh, his story in the word that begs to differ that leadership starts with you. But first, I want to share with you a little bit about my experience. Um, when I was a sophomore in high school was when I had first considered um, going into pastoral ministry. And it's been a bumpy ride. Um, and I particularly remember when I was in high school praying on one occasion, trying to tell God why I shouldn't be a pastor why I shouldn't go into the pastoral ministry. I, I remember specifically telling him I wasn't smart enough, not intelligent enough to be a pastor. Um, I remember telling him I wasn't eloquent enough to be a pastor. I stumble over my words. I can't get up there and speak. I told him I was too prideful to be a pastor. How can a pastor like me be if I'm so prideful? wasn't humble enough. I told him that I didn't have enough self-control to be a pastor. How can I lead when I can't even control myself? I told him I wasn't brave enough to be a pastor. I didn't have the courage. I didn't have what it takes to become a pastor. And so I want to ask you, have you ever had a similar experience? Maybe not particularly with pastoral leadership or leadership in the church, but has there ever been a time where you maybe didn't take a position or a promotion because you were too scared, because you were worried about what that looked like. Perhaps you didn't go to a certain school or pursue a certain major because you didn't think you were smart enough to do it. Or maybe you didn't serve in a specific area of ministry within the church because you didn't think you were adequate. You didn't have what it took to serve in that particular ministry. In my former position as a youth pastor from another church, um, I had a woman come up to me one time and she expressed interest in helping out with the youth ministry. So as I do with anybody who's interested in the youth ministry, the first step I always say is, well, come and just check it out. Just check it out for a couple of weeks and see what you think. So she came uh, for about two times. I think that's all it took. Um, and she approached me afterwards after youth group the second week in a row she said, you know, Mike, I, I pray for the kids, but when I'm around them, I just feel so old. 
I just feel old. And, and it was to my dismay, I mean, she was a wonderful, godly woman. She would have been an excellent uh, volunteer in the ministry, but she had felt like she was just too old. Now, this woman, I, I, I'm guessing, was in her 30s. It shows you the effect that the kids have on us, right? So many times, I think, and too often, we base our decisions on our own qualifications. We base our decisions on our own perception. We base our decisions on sight, not faith. We base our decisions on what we see in front of us. So today I want to look at just one story that comes out of the book of Judges about leadership in an unlikely place. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Judges chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 1 as we read about this leader in an unlikely place. Before we read, I do want to give you just a brief synopsis of Judges, just so you know what the book is about. It will be helpful as we study this portion of Scripture. Uh, The book actually recounts the time frame um, of Israel between the death of Joshua uh, and the elders that outlived him and the establishment of a monarchy in, in Israel. And so it's this time frame where Israel didn't really have an established government There was really no real leader. It was everybody to each his own. And whatever they saw fit in their eyes, they did. Um, And this this caused a problem. There wasn't a real leader. Um, It's actually a very depressing book because it illustrates the downward, downward spiral of the Israelites as a result of their unfaithfulness to God. And so through the book of Judges, we actually see a cycle that happens with each judge that God appoints. And this is the cycle. Uh, The first thing that happens is sin. The Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Sin. They did things that God didn't want them to do. The second is servitude. After they've sinned, there's servitude. God allows the nation, allows Israel to be conquered or oppressed by another nation. And then there's supplication. The Israelites calling out to God, crying out to God, asking for their deliverance from such oppression. And then finally we have salvation. God sends a judge to deliver them. So when we say a judge or we're talking about judges, it's not what you would picture with like the robe get up and the gavel um, in, a, in a courthouse. It's more so just a leader who led Israel in a specific time for a specific purpose. And we see this cycle throughout each of the judges. Um, If anybody ever comes to me and says that the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and wrathful and we don't see God's grace and we don't see God's mercy, I would actually point them to judges. Because time in and time again, we see that God is continually gracious to the Israelites over and over and over again. Sometimes you don't get second choices. Most times you don't get third choices. This cycle happened approximately a dozen times. And so, once again, the Israelites continued to sin, but God, in his grace and his mercy, gave them so many opportunities and so many chances. So this morning we're going to be reading about uh, the most prominent judge. And what I mean by most prominent judge is that uh, no other judge is talked about more in the book of Judges than that of Gideon. There are more verses committed and devoted to Gideon than any other judge. And we're going to talk about his call. We're going to visit 
what his call looked like. And so, if you would, join with me. I will be reading verses 1 through 16 from Judges chapter 6. It says this, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because of the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Wherever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the, Abi- the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Were all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, or where are all his wonders that our father told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon said, asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Right off the bat, we'll just walk through this story, and uh, right off the bat we see in verse 1 where it says, again, again the Israelites did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It demonstrates that recurring cycle. It shows us that we have now entered into a new cycle. If you look right before, at the very end of chapter 5, you'll see that they actually had peace for 40 years. They had peace for 40 years. That is a a lifetime worth of peace. Uh, But they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, and so God responded by giving them into the hands of the Midianites. Now you have to ask the question, did I read that correctly? God gave them into the hands of the Midianites? Why would he do a thing like that? This is why we need to be careful in our reading of Scripture that we let God's Word shape our theology and not the other way around. We need to let God's Word shape what we believe. We can't let what we think or what we believe or how we feel shape how we look at God's Word. Because God's Word is the thing that is never changing. So what do we do with this? Because you may say, no, it's, it's God's job to protect us. 
It's God's job to give me what I want, to give me what I think I need. It's God's job to give me what I want for Christmas. Isn't, this, isn't that God's job to make my life better? No. It's God's job to be glorified above all things. And if that means taking away his hand of protection for a time in order to draw us back to him, then he's going to do it if that is what is going to bring glory. So he gives them over to the Midianites. He takes his hand of protection off the Israelites. And we see just how bad it gets. We see how bad it gets. In verses 2 through 6, we see the situation. We see how bad the oppression is. The Midianites um, formed coalitions, essentially, with other Easterners and the Amalekites to basically pick on the Israelites. They were probably looked at as an easy target. And so anytime the Israelites had a harvest, they would come and set up camp, essentially, and steal all of their food that the Israelites worked so hard to produce. And then they destroyed everything. They left nothing to spare. It said that they were like a swarm of locusts, and there was too many of them to count. Can you imagine the chaos that ensued when they saw these attackers coming in and stealing what was rightfully the Israelites and what they had worked so hard yet? Imagine the pent-up frustration that they had. And this is more than just merely enjoying the fruit of their labor. In a country where agriculture is so important for the economy of their country, you can imagine what this would do for, for their state, for their nation. To work so hard and have someone just take it away. It was so bad that they actually prepared shelters in mountain clefts, in caves. They fled to the hills when they saw these people coming after them. This is, I think, foreign to us in America. We don't know what it's like to truly be oppressed by another force. And you'll know the day that you're oppressed. And that'll be the day where you are running away from your house because you're scared. You're running away from the only place that you can call safe because you're scared of what someone might do to you. That's how bad it was. And it's this continual pattern of oppression over the course of seven years. Once again, think if you are in the state of mind of the Israelites. Maybe the first or the second time was just a fluke. That won't happen again. But you've got to imagine by the fifth time, by the sixth time, by the seventh time, they just came to accept it and expect it. But they still had to, they still had to provide for their families. So what else can they do? It became so bad that it says that this seven years impoverished the Israelites. And the word impoverished in this sense literally means to be made small. The Israelites were made small. Their morale was executed. They were paralyzed. They were helpless. Because they couldn't do anything. Couldn't do anything about it. They were too weak. And so they did the only thing that they could do. They cried out to God. They cried out to God. Don't we do this? We cry out to God when there's nothing left to do. 
How easy is it for us to insert ourselves into verse 6? What does it say? It says, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. How easy is it to sit here and say, my situation in life right now has so impoverished me, has so made me small, that I've cried out to God for help. And it can come in all different shapes and sizes. You can call out to God and say, God, my life is miserable. I hate my job, but I don't feel like I can get out of it. Lord, my parents are sick, and I've got to take care of them, and it breaks my heart to see their decline in health. Lord, my son doesn't want anything to do with me. And I don't even know if he'll show up for Thanksgiving. And I am broken because of it. Lord, are you even listening to me? Are you even there? Don't you see what's going on in my life? And we hit rock bottom. Sometimes, a lot of times, it takes hitting rock bottom before we cry out to God. Because it isn't until we hit rock bottom that we see our weakness. And we will not see God's strength until we see our own weakness. We'll address it later, but let me encourage you guys that it isn't until you find your weakness that you'll find God's strength. So they cry out, and the Lord responds in verses 7 to 10. What does he say? He sends them somebody. They, and who does he send? They've asked for a deliverer. They want someone to come and rescue them. And does God send a fighter who's going to stand up against these peoples and, you know, chase them out of town? No. He sends them a prophet. He sends them a prophet. One commentator has said that this would be like you driving down Peach Street in the middle of rush hour and your car breaking down and you're frustrated and you're angry. And so you call AAA and you say, I need you to send somebody to help me out of this situation because if I stay on Peach Street long enough, it's going to drive me mad. i got to get out of here. And they say, okay, we'll take care of it. We're sending you somebody. We're sending you help. And instead of sending an auto mechanic, they send you a philosopher. And the philosopher looks at your car and says, well, this is what happened. This is what's going on in your car. And by this time, you're like... No, I don't want a philosopher. I want an auto mechanic. I want you to fix my car. Can you fix my car? If you can't, then you have no business being here. I want you to fix my car. The Israelites are frustrated because God sent them something that they didn't think they needed. They said, a philosopher? Really, God? Really? But I'd be willing to guess that God sent them exactly what they needed. And that was somebody to point them back to God's word. Somebody to point them back to God's word. What does the prophet say? Let's reread it. Verses 8 through 10. He sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you 
have not listened to me. As a soul watcher, or a pastor, or an elder, or a leader in the church, one of the heaviest responsibilities of the pastor or the elder isn't to fix the problems, not to fix your problems. It's not, we don't need somebody who's going to make everything better. What we need, though, is someone who's going to point back to God's word, who's going to look at your situation and say, I don't know what's going on, but let's see what God has to say about it. What we need is someone to boldly proclaim what God has said in his word. And notice what the prophet doesn't say. He doesn't say that you deserve to be rescued. No, he says the reason you are here is because of your own wrongdoing, because of your own sin, and frankly, you deserve to remain in your oppression. And that sets the stage for the call of Gideon, Because now as we look at this, and we look at God calling Gideon, we see that this was a pure act of grace. This was a pure act of grace on the part of God to send them a deliverer, to lead them out of their oppression. By no means do the Israelites deserve to be rescued, but God loves them and he cares for them, so he sends somebody. And we have Gideon that enters the picture. And the scene that we catch him in is just a small illustration of what life looked like for the Israelites. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, I don't know what threshing wheat looks like or how it should look. I'm not a farmer. I'm not somebody that threshes wheat on a daily basis. But this is my understanding of it. Threshing wheat was normally done out on the hilltops where the wind was high so you could throw the wheat in the air and the heavy grain would fall to the ground and the chaff that was lighter would be carried away by the wind and it made collecting grain just much more easier if it was done out in the, out in the open. And here we find Gideon in a wine press. A wine press was what they used to make wine. It was basically dug out of solid rock from the earth, and there would be two receptacles that they would use to create wine that were kind of in these caverns and dug down into the earth. And so it actually says that Gideon was hiding from the Midians, from the Midianites. He was hiding from them. He was so scared of them that he was willing to thresh wheat in a wine press to do a job less efficiently so that he wouldn't be caught or draw attention to himself. And then we have an angel of God appear before him. This is a, essentially a manifestation of God himself. It was a very similar occurrence when Moses um, experienced the burning bush. By the end of this, Gideon refers to God in the first person. And so essentially what we can say about this angel of God is this as if God is speaking to Gideon himself. God himself is calling Gideon. And God looks to Gideon and he says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now, there's a great irony to this situation, isn't there? We've just learned that Gideon is hiding. Gideon is a coward. 
He doesn't look like a mighty warrior. As I've heard one pastor say in the past, you wonder if Gideon did one of those moves where God calls him a mighty warrior and he kind of just looks over his shoulder. Goes, me? Mighty, you're calling me a mighty warrior? You must have the wrong guy. I'm sorry. You're mistaken. Because I'm hiding. I am not a mighty warrior. And Gideon challenges God on this. He challenges the fact that God is with him. God said, the Lord is with you. And Gideon challenges him. What does he say? He says, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are the wonders that our father told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? And now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is letting his own perception get the best of him. He's accurate in his theology and the fact that God indeed led them into the hands of the Midianites. But he is wrong in his tone. He's wrong in his attitude because he never mentions the Israelites and their hand in in all of the matter. Once again, this is something that we can relate to. God, if, if you're with me, why are my parents getting divorced? God, if you're with me, why do I continue to have health issues? God, if you're with me, why does it seem like every one of my friends is exceeding in life, exceeding at their jobs, exceeding in their family, except for me? If you're with us, where are all those wonders that I've heard about? No, you've abandoned us. You've abandoned me. Gideon shows his ignorance to Israel's real problem. And because I have that same problem of ignorance to the greater story of everything, I have to constantly ask my, uh, myself the question, is my perception of how my life is working out consistent with God's word? Is my perception of my life and how I think things are working out Is that consistent with what God says in his word? Because either I'm correct or God's word is correct. Either I'm wrong or God's word is wrong. And God's word has proved itself over and over again for thousands of years. And so I would be willing to bet that I am the one that needs to adjust my perception. And God responds, In verse 14, Gideon, you don't think I'm going to do something? I love you and I care for you, so I am going to send somebody. It's you. I am going to send you. Am I not sending you? I have chosen you to lead my people out of Israel or out of the uh, the oppression of the Midianites. Gideon probably feels uncomfortable at this point. He... I already told you, I'm not a mighty warrior. You got the wrong guy. Sorry, God. And even more so, the Lord says, go in your own strength. Go in your own strength, Gideon, to save Israel. And Gideon responds by saying, go in my own strength. You want to know about my own strength? I'll tell you about my own strength. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I am the smallest in my entire family. 
So if you want me to go in my own strength, know that you're sending the weakest of the weak. I am the lowest of the lows. I can't go in my own strength because I don't have any. Sometimes when I work with teenagers, I see this interesting phenomena that happens that I've just called fishing for compliments, where somebody says something negative about themselves. And then like clockwork, their friends come around them and say, no, that's not you. Come on, you're not, you know, you can do it. You're beautiful. You're strong. You're powerful. Don't say that about yourself. Notice what God doesn't say to Gideon. God doesn't say to Gideon, oh, Gideon, no, you're strong enough. You're strong enough. You can do this. You can do this. No, he says, you're right, Gideon. You are weak, but that is right where I want you. That way, when you strike down all of the Midianites, everyone will look at me, not you, because I will make you strong. And then he reassures Gideon, in your weakness, I will be with you. I will be with you. God's response to Gideon is the same as that to Moses. I will be with you. And Gideon obviously has have heard the stories about Egypt and what happened there and what happened with Moses. So perhaps there was a memory that was wrung in Gideon's mind when God said the words to him, I will be with you. God said, let me demonstrate my grace for my people by sending them a deliverer, and that deliverer is you. And you're not going to go by yourself because I will be with you because Gideon, I am the ultimate deliverer. In Gideon's case, and our case, qualifications for leadership at the initial call do not matter. In order for God to use you, He wants you right where you are. He wants you right where you are. He wants you in all of your weakness so that he can make you strong. And this is so contradictory to how we feel about life. It's contradictory to our nature. When we go on a job interview, we bring a resume. And on the resume, we list all of the qualifications that we have, all of the reasons why I should get that job. Look at me, look at what I've done, give me the job because I'm qualified. And in the job interview, they ask you questions and you try and answer the questions that make yourself look good. You try and boost yourself up so that you will look qualified for the position. But in the face of God... The perfect and the almighty, our qualifications are nothing. We're weak. We're useless. And he calls the weak so that he gets all the glory. The original and initial call to leadership starts with God. And it's through God's strength and through his power that you mature and grow. And it's through him working in your life that we become strong and that we become qualified. It's it's a cliche phrase, but I've heard it before. He doesn't call the qualified. 
He qualifies the called. But he starts with you right where you are. We're going to find out later in the series that there are qualifications for elders. There's qualifications for pastors. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, Pastor Mike preached just a couple weeks ago that there are no qualifications. I can be whoever I want to be. Don't, please, don't mishear me. Know, guys, that it's through God's strength and through his power that he qualifies us. We are weak, but he makes us strong. At the very beginning, leadership starts with God. And he appoints these soul watchers to care for his flock. And when he appoints them, it isn't based on strength. It isn't based on power. It isn't based on social status. It's based on his choice. Based on his choice. The same is true in our relationship with God. So many of us make the mistake by looking at Christ or and saying, you know, I need to reach a certain point spiritually to follow Christ. I need to read my Bible at least a couple of times a week before I can become a Christian. I need to go to church at least once a month in order to become a Christian. No! You don't need to reach a certain point spiritually to follow Christ. In fact, we follow Christ because we aren't at a certain point spiritually. You follow Christ because you are the antithesis of qualified. You are the opposite of qualified. You are far from it. As Justin reminded us last week, that apart from God, we have no significance. He reminded us last week that we were dead. And it wasn't anything we did to make us alive. It was God through the Holy Spirit that made us alive. And what was the avenue that he made us alive through? By becoming a deliverer or a leader in the most unlikely place, in the most unlikely situation. The God of heaven and earth, the God of all creation and all of his power and all of the universe humbly stepped down and became a man and led as a servant not by strength, but in weakness. And he delivered us from the oppression of our sin. Not by fighting, but by dying. Laying down his life. But it was through that death that he conquered all of the forces of evil. And so I'm not here to tell you that you're capable and you can do it. And if you just try harder, you can lead and you can, you know, be like God. What I'm here to tell you is that you're weak, that you're incapable. But we have a God who is strong. And you will be made strong by him, through him, for him. And it's only through that frame that we can approach the rest of our series on leadership, that frame that leadership starts with God. Gideon was not the most obvious choice for leadership, but he was God's choice. Was God's choice. And so I end with a quote from a pastor who's a senior pastor out of the Cleveland, Ohio area, Alistair Begg. He says, The story of Gideon is a reminder to us 
that the people that God chooses to use are some of the most unlikely people at the most unlikely times. Ordinary people chosen for extraordinary tasks. Leadership starts with God.